this is Compositional. I'm Robin Bateborup. Today I'm joined by Mathieu. Mathieu, will you introduce yourself? Hi, Robin. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, Matthew Boslug. I'm the CEO of uh, Twig. I've been uh, doing this for uh, seven years now and um, looking forward to uh, talk about uh, functional programming and anything that you'd be interested to ask me questions about. What is Twig? So the, the, the short of it is the Twig is a software innovation lab. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that our mission is to try things out, uh, try different ways of building software and see if those work, double down on the things that uh, do work and uh, talk about those things and promote them, but keep exploring. Um, and so of course, you know, no one pays for trying things out. Uh, what clients pay for is getting us to help them solve their problems. And so we sell our time and expertise to join their teams uh, on a temporary basis and uh, help them out. We join their team because they need more software written faster. Uh, so in other words, uh, people want to scale out their team and there are all kinds of difficulties related to that. Um, we join their teams because their engineers want to learn something new, uh, like how to use functional programming effectively and avoid the pitfalls. Um, or how to make their CI/CD pipelines 99.9% .9 reproducible and reliable, or uh, simply because they have hard problems to solve, like uh, simulating human human physiology or on a computer, or uh, making uh, taxis fly. And they want to gain access to really good engineers to work on these problems. When you founded Tweak, what was the the big idea that you wanted to bring to life? I think when I started Twig, I had very small ideas, um, and that's fine, really. Um, I think when I started, I, I started Twig with uh, a very simple goal. I um, was coming out of academia. Um, I'd spent five years in academia, and um, I had a ton of fun uh, working on academic projects. Um, I had a lot of freedom. Uh, to explore whatever ideas I wanted to explore. And, um, you know, that was a, a fairly fertile, uh, intellectually fertile moment for me. Uh, at the same time, I got to say, I, I often felt lonely in academia. Um, it's not like uh, you work with other people um, in a pack, uh, you know, with all the same goals in mind. Um, you know, very, everyone kind of has their own agenda. And, uh, you know, often these agendas intersect. And uh, to the extent that the agendas of uh, different people intersect, uh, people collaborate. Um, but I was aspiring, you know, I, I was interested in essentially working with the methods of the industry. I thought that would, you know, correspond to me more. Um, you know, as in have, have, give herself a, a goal and give herself a common goal for say five or six people um, or more. But, you know, the, my, my horizon then was just, you know, a small team uh, that you could, uh, as they say, feed with two pizzas and, um, you know, work in, in very close synchrony with, uh, with that team. And so I thought, 
you know, uh, my, my initial goal was simply to create an environment where we could attract um, really talented people to uh, try to solve problems for, for folks and um, also attract interesting problems for these people to solve. And so that was really the only uh, goal that we had when we started Tweak was just, hey, let's create a space for people to work on interesting things. Yeah. Now the the two pizza team size has has changed, hasn't it? Just can you tell the listeners what has changed in that regard? Well, uh, so these days we um, have a lot more engineers than that. Um, I think uh, we have maybe uh, fifty five people in the company right now, or thereabouts. And um, but that being said, you know it's not like all 50 of us or 55 work on uh, exactly the same thing. Um, we collaborate with, uh, so we have a lot of our own projects. Um, nearly all of them are open source. Um, and then we have a lot of projects that we work with in partnership with our clients. And these projects, um, so, and all in all, you know, we're, we're talking about dozens of projects that Twig executes on in parallel. Um, and uh, so typically on these projects, we'll have um, anywhere between say two and um, six or, or eight uh, tweakers on the project, as well as um, you know, any number of, of, of engineers uh, on, and, and other functions on the client side. And some of the clients that we work with are very, very large companies. Some of them are uh, very small indeed. So for the functional programming enthusiasts who are interested in understanding i guess if if there's a, you know the ability to have a commercial success with functional programming can you give a hint about twig's um uh you know commercial success so and the, we, we've been in business for for seven years and um i think that in the beginning um I always thought that, so, so I thought, hey, we're, we're not in, in this to become big, to become huge. Um, we, you know, what we want to work on, what we want to make sure is uh, to uh, work on interesting problems. You know, that was the initial goal, as I was saying, um, and to use the technologies that we like using. I mean, at the end of the day, we want our, our job to be fun and, you know, a big part of, um, uh, fun is, is being able to explore, uh, being able to use, um, being able to solve a problem the way we think it, it ought to be solved. Um, and, and being able to experiment really quickly, try a lot of different things, uh, see what works, uh, see what doesn't. Um, you know, that, 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 that kind of process um, has always been very fun to me. And, you know, it's, it's the process that, it's, it's a process that you find a lot in science as well, where you're, 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 there's a lot that you don't know and um, uh, in, tr in trying to discover uh, new pieces of knowledge, you know, you often end up in dead ends. Um, and, uh, you know, it's all about um, finding out that you're in a dead end as fast as possible, backtrack and, and try something else. So uh, because this is what we were kind of most interested in, um, we thought um, that there are perhaps not that many people who would be interested in working in, in that way. Uh, we thought that there weren't that many people who would be interested in uh, using um, 
in the approach that we had to software development. Um, and so we thought we, that, you know, we'd always stay very small indeed. Uh, but since we started seven years ago, I think we've had roughly uh, anywhere between 50% uh, and 100% growth every year. Um, and um, this is uh, purely because of, um, and, and most of that growth has come from uh, uh, building projects using functional programming in some form or another um, for a number of different verticals and for a number of different clients. Um, you know, there's no typical size for the clients that we have. There's no typical industry for the clients that we have. Um, and, um, you know, to some extent, this growth um, has also happened because the, the, the size of the uh, market has grown a lot as as we ourselves um, have been, you know, starting and trying to consolidate the, the company that we have. Um, and so, you know, uh, at this point in time, I mean, I, in the end, you know, we get to, the, to, to this point in the company's development, which is a point that's already far beyond what I'd uh, ever thought was possible to do. Um, especially, uh, you know, what I thought was possible to do um, by essentially focusing on, on functional programming techniques. What is different about Twig um, if you were to compare to, say, a, a similarly sized software consultancy that uh, is not playing in the functional programming community? What else uh, does Tweak do differently? And I, you've alluded or said things about this already, but maybe just to group it together into one answer. Well, uh, you know, as you said, for one, you know, we, we do have to acknowledge that at this point in time, uh, functional programming is, is, is an idea that's become uh, uh, mainstream already in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, most, nearly all programming languages that people use at this point um, are languages um, that, while they may not necessarily encourage a functional style, at least support it. And so, you know, if you wanted to do functional programming, uh, I mean, yeah, in, 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 in Scala, for example, you can, or in, in Kotlin, I mean, it's, it's conceivable that you would have a, a functional style uh, even in, in, in Python or in C++ or in Java. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you do have uh, support for um, uh, anonymous functions, functional literal, literals. You're able to pass functions as uh, values um, you know, as, as arguments to, to other functions seamlessly. And these were things that were, you know, not, uh, those were very new ideas when we started, you know, at the end of 2013 or so. Um, and in fact, when we started, there was a bit of a, um, there was a bit of a, uh, let's say monoculture around programming languages. Um, the, 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 the 80s and uh, the 90s, well, let's say the early days of IT, were um, uh, a tremendously uh, um, fertile time for uh, the emergence of lots of new programming languages. Um, there's a lot of um, folks who tried all kinds of different ideas, all kinds of different paradigms, uh, from logic programming to object-oriented programming uh, to uh, you know just uh, simple procedural programming and try to just see uh, to what extent we can really get stuff done with uh, simple procedural programming. Um, you know, 
people invented lots and lots of different programming languages. And even in the industry, lots of different programming languages were used. Um, now, my perception as a young PhD student, you know, in the, in the early uh, noughties, um, was um, that the, the, the world was converging towards Java and the JVM, um, and that that's just how things were going to be. And uh, that, you know, the more uh, time went on and the more this hegemony was going to become kind of inescapable and all-encompassing. Um, and so I was a very depressed young, young man. And, uh, you know, I, I was very depressed at this idea. But it turns out I could not have been more wrong. Uh, and it turns out that what happened uh, um, after that is that, uh, you know, we saw uh, lots of new programming languages uh, arise. And a lot of them, um, a lot of them, had you know ideas from functional uh, programming, or let's say um, ideas from programming language research uh, in general. You know the, the research that had been done in academia it took a lot of these ideas and 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 made these ideas core to the design of a lot of new programming languages. And so today you have um, a lot of uh, service providers who um, uh, cater to all kinds of different niches, and um, and so you have a number of them who, um, uh, you know, very much understand um, a lot of the, the, the ideas behind functional programming and are very keen to explore uh, what functional programming can do um, and how it can help their clients. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a very active space at this point. Um, but to come back to your question or, or about, you know, what, what makes Twig different, you know, what I would uh, ask back to you is, um, well, different for who? Different for people in Twig, uh, different for our clients. Yeah, that's a good question. I was interested in, like, from the perspective of potential clients from the outside. I mean, both answers are definitely very interesting, though. But can you answer? Uh, I think, you, and you already did a little bit. But yeah, I was interested in from the outside. So, in, in terms of the model that we have, you know, w when we work with a client, um, we nearly never do that to work on a project on our own. Um, and it's pretty much always a setup where uh, Twig brings engineers um, and um, uh, the client brings a few of theirs and we set up a hybrid team. Um, and so why do we do that? Well, because you know, we believe the incentives are, are, are much better aligned that way. Um, the, uh, you know, you're, you're able to, to, first of all, it's very difficult to... Um, be able to, to, to work on any uh, or most software projects um, and uh, come up with a very detailed spec up front and be, and be able to say, okay, well, you know, here's, we understand exactly what we want to build. Um, we know exactly how much time it's going to take. And so here's exactly how much it's going to cost. Um, and because of that, um, you know, it, it becomes it becomes a very risky thing to do. Uh, for example, to say, "Hey, you know, we'll 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 build out um, we'll we'll build this new service, for example," and um, uh, we're not quite sure what the contours of it are. We're not quite sure how we're going to do it, but hey, um, here's our price. Uh, you know, to and and we'd have to control for that risk some way or another. And so, one way to control for that risk is to basically build in like a huge. Um, uh, uh, building a, a, a huge um, 
um, overhead, you know, to, to just in case in the price, just in case things don't pan out um, as we th thought it would. So, uh, you know, we're much more interested in working in an incremental fashion together with our clients and be able to capacity build their own teams. So work with, with their engineers, um, make sure that their engineers are involved in every decision that we take, make sure that we can consult their engineers, um, and uh, you know, so that and so that they can tell us more effectively as well um, what they want. I mean, you know, we're, we're often not the domain experts in uh, things that we in, in projects that we undertake. Um, it's more often than not the case that um, when we take on a new project, it's kind of the the first time at Twig that we've done that type of project before, um, and um, so it's it's really important to you know the, this whole idea of, of, of working in a, with, with hybrid teams is kind of core to, to a lot of what we do. What would you say to a company that is trying to modernize and they have, say, a, a software stack that is, you know, a bit old school, maybe it's a very old school, has some C++ or, or maybe it is a Java-based um, like company that has a number of teams. You know, in these companies, there's often a new project that gets launched and an opportunity to reevaluate their software stack, especially the programming language. What would you say to companies uh, in terms of like what the, the plausible menu of such technologies uh, can be, such languages? What, what can they really choose from? Um, and, and if they have an interest in functional programming, especially, what can they put on the menu of choices if they actually can't afford uh, enormous risk? So the first thing that I would say is that um, there, there's often this temptation to, for example, you know, do away with the old and, and, and throw, throw it away and say, hey, let's, let's start anew. Let's start anew with um, these, this new framework and these new programming languages and so on. Um, and, and I think that um, you know you, you you probably want to be resisting that temptation nearly always. Um, and um, something that we see a lot in the in some of these communities, be it functional programming communities or, or other communities, of people who are very passionate about uh, new technologies and the the, the new uh, possibilities that they offer. Is that people are kind of very focused on um, rewriting whatever was there before to fit this new worldview, um, and so you know there's perhaps more. Of course, you know the, this whole idea of um, reinventing the wheel is is kind of um, you know it's it's, it's present all throughout our industry. Um, but I I would. Um, um, my hunch is that you know we probably have even more of that going on in in um, communities of folks who who are who, who like to think a lot about new technologies and and and, um, and what they enable. So you know our focus at Twig has been uh, to uh, try to make it really easy to reuse um, whatever is already there as much as possible uh, to be able to. Um, understand and contain the different behaviors that these uh, existing software bricks can have um, and to be able to compose them in, 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 in more ways and in more predictable ways. Um, so, you know, when it comes to 
existing uh, software, you know, you, you usually just want to keep things uh, the way they are. So don't don't go ahead and and um, re-implement uh, numeric algorithms if there's a, already a perfectly good uh, implementation in Fortran uh, or in C, for example. Um, and as to the, the so what language you know would you use to, to to glue a lot of these existing pieces together? Well, there's a lot of different constraints that you want to consider here, and one of the very crucial constraints is what does your um, what does your team know? So you know you you've got to look at um, um, what the knowledge of your existing team uh, looks like and say. Um, um, well, this this is uh, you know th th that's going to have a huge impact on, on, on your choice. I, I don't think it really makes sense to say, oh hey, um, we only know um, uh, you know we only know the JVM ecosystem, for example. We only know uh, object-oriented programming using Java, and um, we're going to throw away all of that hard-earned knowledge um, and expertise, and we're going to just uh, redo everything in a completely different language that is not even JVM-based, um, a language that um, doesn't allow you to, to call a lot of these very high-quality libraries that exist for the JVM um, and, um, and things like that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of always a very uh, dangerous proposition to, to not be looking at, you know, what does your team know? And I think that's probably the number one, the number one factor here. Um, and then... Based on that, you know, then you, you also want to look at well, who can I hire who easily, who um, are uh, going to have the skills that I need for my project, and uh, you know that th these are the kind of the two uh, main things I think that are going to drive uh, your, um, your 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 choice for uh, for uh, you know different programming languages. Um, the good news is that. You know, at this point, I would say that you have a lot of different um, um, programming languages and technologies that were, say, very new uh, even just a, a few years ago, or let's say had a very small um, ecosystems around them. So, for example, a uh, few people who were uh, interested in, in um, having a job full-time working with these technologies. Um, and a few libraries available in those programming languages and things like that. Um, but you know, these days, because we have this basically resurgence, you know, we're moving away again from for the for the mono the monocultures, or, uh, or or say the the, the less diverse um, world uh, of of the early two thousands that that I was describing earlier. You know, when we're seeing. Um, and a lot of this is enabled by recent technology developments, uh, like containerization, you know, that that uh, basically enable teams to work in a more decoupled fashion from each other and to have a broader choice across the entire technology stack that they're using. Um, and you know, these these things were perhaps um, uh, possible before, but not as well understood. Um, and the technologies to, to enable you to work that in, in that fashion were perhaps um, not as easy to use as now. So, given given uh, given the ability to to to, to mix and a, a greater ability to to, to mix and match um, uh, 
different um, uh, technology stacks than we had before, it's only really natural to see more and more programming languages ar ar arise. Um, and you know, a lot of them are, are at this point very mature um, uh, programming language ecosystems. And so for example, if you take the Haskell ecosystem in which we've been very ha uh, active as of late, and you know, this is at the end of the day, a 30-year-old uh, uh, programming language, uh, give or take, I mean, I think it started the, in the early 90s, um, with, with you know, years and years of, of, um, of research that was poured into it and that we get the benefit of today. And so we have um, at least one uh, state-of-the-art uh, compiler uh, for, for the Haskell programming language uh, called GHC. Um, and, uh, you know, the, if you turn to um, other ecosystems, uh, for example, uh, Rust, um, or for example, Go, which you know, is a site uh, uh, programming language, or Kotlin, site programming languages that uh, all arose in the next, in the last uh, uh, five or 10 years, really. Um, you know, th these are all very, um, um, these are all languages that um, um, are, are, are fair, have already fairly mature ecosystems with a lot of people who are interested in these programming languages, who've been learning how to code effectively using these programming languages, and who are very willing to, who are very eager to use them in their day job. And what would you say to a, a VP of engineering type or a CTO type who has assessed their team and decided that um, the skills are such that uh, a new programming language is merited in their new project or or some aspect of an existing project. And so they want to add that to their previously sort of monolinguistic, monocultural repo uh, so that it becomes a polyglot kind of repo. What would you warn them about in terms of technical um, landmines, I guess, uh, you know, uh, from the perspective of a software leader who's trying to anticipate, well, you know, costs, as well as just uh, schedule and complexities resulting from that kind of technical choice. So one thing that's uh, important to, to, to realize um, uh, upfront is that if you're going to have a, a, a single repository with a lot of different programming languages uh, mixed in that you know, will be used by a lot of different teams, that makes sense um, because you uh, probably have um, different areas of your project that require um, uh, that that are basically you know working different uh, solution spaces, different problem spaces. Sorry. So you know there might be a, a part of your project um, where you need to write, um, say, partial differential equations, um, and uh, you know you, you need uh, easy access to, to solvers for these um, uh, partial differential equations. You might have um, other uh, parts of the project that um, involve no, no no math at all, um, and um, where you have, say, uh, you know, uh, real time constraints um, um, or at runtime or um, you know, God knows what else. And so it's, it's only natural that different programming languages for different uh, problem domains um, would, would be warranted. The, the thing to realize is that um, it's fine to have, say, four or five different programming languages, but there's a lot of um, costs uh, that you'll discover over time with having 
uh, four or five or even 10 different build systems. Um, so if you have lots of different programming languages, but then you um, have at least as many different build systems and therefore, um, you know, uh, not necessarily the ability to, for example, build the entire project in one go, everything that's in the, in one repository, that's, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a problem for onboarding new engineers uh, to your team. You know, you might have this long list of instructions that say, well, first, uh, you know, call this particular build system and so build this particular part of the project. And then, you know, once you're done doing that, uh, run this other command and then run this third command. And um, of course, uh, more often than not, these, these commands half fail halfway through and then, then what you do. So it's very important to, um, or it, it can be, it can have, it can be a very simplifying force to essentially insist on having a, a single build system, build system that has uh, a very, um, an, an as detailed view of the dependency graph. So as you're uh, assembling pieces of software together, you know, you're, you're going to have lots of things that depend on each other. And um, the more you can expose these dependencies um, in a global fashion to a single system, um, the more you can, for example, optimize your uh, continuous integration. And so, um, you know, you can, um, with, with a global view of the dependency graph, you can uh, use a build system that um, is able to parallelize the building of, of all, each of the different components uh, of your of your um, that that are in your in your repository. Um, you can have it then parallelize uh, the 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 build and therefore um, make uh, each job of your CI uh, execute faster. Same thing with parallelizing tests. So. Having one build system with a, a global view of the dependency graph is, is a really powerful thing. Um, and it also enables different teams to, you know, more easily hack on, on the, uh, the, the, the builds on the build system in particular, modify things, um, in other teams build definition files, if that's necessary as, as you're working, um, on the interaction between say two, two different components. So one, um, build system that's designed for polyglot projects for uh, polyglot monorepos it's kind of the, the 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 poster use case is um is google's bazel uh, build system um bazel is based on blaze which is the uh, build system that google uses internally uh, for the the i mean they have a number of uh, code repositories is my understanding in google but they have one a particularly large uh, repository um, that, um, according to the, the figures I saw uh, not so long ago, had something like uh, two billion lines of code in it, and um, two billion lines of code in all kinds of different programming languages. Uh, you know, this is not just uh, Java code or, or C code, and um, uh, you know they they have a, a single build system um, that um, rebuilds. Um, the entire repository with lots of caching, of course, whenever um, anything changes um, in, in any subfolder of the, of the of the repository. And how how well understood in the industry do you think that answer actually is? 
because my my experience is that um, many shops are getting caught by surprise when they um, switch to a new technology or new uh, and interesting uh, programming language and, and they, they put it in their stack and then they sometimes encounter difficulties and often they do a, a blame the new technology thing instead of a kind of blame my build system thing or uh, you know blame my uh, something else what's your experience there so something that we definitely observe a lot is that um, a lot of teams don't pay enough attention to their iteration time um, and we see that you know people find it perfectly acceptable to have uh, you know CI jobs of an hour or more or oh I don't know if they find it acceptable but but that's what they live with um, and so uh, you know eventually some uh, engineers realize hey you know that's actually quite a drag to our productivity uh, there's only so many times that we can uh, push to production if uh, you know things are going to go on for an hour or more and so we really need to do something about that um, and and certainly been our experience that uh, keeping CI times um, very low indeed um, is a great way to ultimately increase code quality uh, and this is something that um, um, you know that there's a very strong uh, correlation that we can see there and so you really really want to be focusing on having uh, uh, your your build times um, be be um, very small and um, somehow uh, you know this is uh, you know the, the 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 impact of of uh of time uh you know the the, the impact of uh context switching you know the cost of context switching for our engineers so for example uh let's say you know i i'm still surprised that um folks today um haven't um say fully acknowledged um, the cost of um, uh, switching from one the, the cost that it has when you switch from one branch to another you know let's say that you're uh, in a, on a feature branch and you're you've been um, working at it you're really concentrated um, but then um, another you know your teammate comes to comes to you and says hey um, uh, you know we sorry we there's this really uh, important problem uh, you know that we noticed in production and we need to uh, push a, a hot fix and um, you know we need to, to test it out can you have a look um, actually you know the the we haven't fully worked out the solutions to the problem here so um, come over to this other branch and um, and have a look at what's going on so you check out this other branch and uh, you know you spend maybe uh, five or ten minutes um, figuring out uh, the, the last little bit um, and then you know your your, your colleague goes on and now you uh, move back to your initial branch and uh, lo and behold you know you can't even it's a rebuilding this initial branch uh, now takes uh, uh, now takes an hour because you know uh, the, the the build system is rebuilding everything from scratch um, and so you know this this kind of uh, uh, the, the, and you you want to be able to, to switch branches um, uh, all the time, you want to be able to, you know, you don't want you to be in a position where your engineers start hesitating to collaborate because, you know, they're going to have to switch branches and, ah, well, there's this, you know, 
unconscious dread in, in their mind um, that, well, you know, if I switch branches now, that's going to be a, a bit of a pain in, um, because, uh, because, you know, it's, it's going to incur, incur a lot of lost time waiting for my computer to rebuild things. So you want uh, uh, CI times to be, to be very fast and you want uh, uh, switching branches to be a completely seamlessly, uh, uh, just a complete non-issue, a, complete, a completely seamless thing. Um, so, you know, this is why you, you want to be using build systems that cache aggressively, extremely aggressively. And the risk, of course, is that when you uh, do a lot of caching in your build system, uh, that uh, so caching has a knack for basically um, uh, triggering a lot of bugs in the build system if there are bugs. And so what you also want from your build system is that they can guarantee the absence of certain classes of bugs um, uh, so that uh, and in particular guarantee that uh, the presence or absence of caching is um, you know never going to have an impact on whether the build succeeds or doesn't. And that's also something that, uh, Bazel provides. You know, Bazel um, is a system uh, where uh, that, that promises that your, um, your your builds are always going to be fast um, and correct. Now, and that's that's the tagline of Bazel. And the correct part comes from the fact that um, Bazel sandboxes all of your build actions, and that means that uh, your build actions can only succeed if the uh, dependencies for each build action has been uh, correctly declared. Um, and if they, uh, they're, they're not properly declared, then these, build, then these dependencies uh, will not be uh, present in the sandbox. And so if your build action actually um, needed these dependencies, but they weren't declared, well, the build will fail. So sandboxing the build actions is, is really important to ensuring the, the correctness of the, of the uh, definition of the build graph that, that your uh, team is writing. Um, and once you're confident that your uh, build graph is correctly expressed, then uh, you can be very confident about uh, caching uh, very aggressively um, and, uh, you know, therefore vastly accelerate your CI times. And, um, uh, you know, you should be aiming for probably maximum 10 minutes, uh, um, you know, CI times, I think. And, uh, and, and also uh, make it very seamless to, to switch from one branch to another. Nice. So the topic of functional programming has sort of led to the topic of, you know, in, in wanting to be uh, practical about deploying systems with functional programs that led to the topic of um, polyglot repos, which led to the topic of, you know, the developer experience needing sophisticated build automation. What has... Twig um, invested in in, the, in that area technically. So our first foray into using um, systems like Bazel um, dates back to probably end of 2017 or thereabouts. And um, so what we discovered at the time was that so so Bazel had already been open source since uh, two years before that. I think uh, first open sourcing of Bazel was in 2015. And of course, the system that's based on called Blaze is much older than that uh, within Google. Um, and what we discovered uh, at the end of 2017, maybe this was 2018, was that by then, uh, uh, Bazel or more precisely Blaze 
um, already had a number of descendants. Um, and this, you know, was due to the fact that probably a number of engineers at Google, um, you know, later left Google, went to Facebook, went to Twitter, um, a number of other companies. And so each of those companies then developed their own build systems using the same ideas um, as Blaze. And so uh, you have at this point uh, Buck, which is the system that Facebook uses, uh, very similar in terms of functionality um, to, uh, to, to, to Bazel. Uh, I mean, there, there are some differences, but um, you know, just like Bazel, there's this focus on um, being a polyglot build system and, and this focus on making sure that your, your build graph is correct um, and, and making sure that it's, it's very it's safe to um, aggressively cache and to and to uh, build um, uh, and to aggressively parallelize the builds to make them as fast as possible. So you have Bach, you have uh, Pants at Twitter, you have Bazel, and so when we started to um, to uh, look at this space, we said, "Hey, we we started with with Bazel specifically, and we noticed that um, unlike Bach, who already had some support for the Haskell programming language, um, Bazel did not." And so uh, we um, we decided that we would start by um, adding Haskell support uh, to Bazel, and um, so we worked on that for a while. And then, uh, in the process of working on that, we realized that the that in practice, the promise of um, uh, correctness uh, that that Bazel had um, was not as easy to achieve. As as the you know as you'd um, as the the marketing would lead you to believe I guess um, and now the reason for that is that there's two ways of having uh, you know a, a mono repo so you can have a, re a, a an actual mono repo a true mono repo but a true mono repo probably has the the Linux kernel that you ought to be using when you're when you're building the code checked in. It will have the compiler checked in. So you're talking about a really big repo where you have like your, your dependencies and their dependencies and their dependencies and so on and so forth, all the way down to the kernel, all right. in the repo. And that means that, you know, when you're building things, you're, I mean, maybe these things are checked in as, as, as binary blobs, or maybe they're, uh, you know, they're only the sources checked in, but if only the source is checked in, when, then when you're building, you're you're building all the way from the kernel and the compiler, uh, you know, up to uh, the, the the leaves of the project. And presumably, Google has this actually. That's probably what Google has internally. Um, but outside of Google, you know, having such a large mono repo um, is um, is is not realistic. And uh, you know, typically, what people call mono repos is more this idea that all the code. That the company has uh, might be in a single repository, but you know, third-party dependencies are, are, are kind of still um, somewhere else in some way. And so, when you're uh, building your code uh, using Bazel, uh, there's all of these you know third-party dependencies that are coming from somewhere and that are not necessarily um, very precisely pinned in terms of what version of these external dependencies do we actually depend on? Are we really all using the same C compiler? Um, uh, you know, so for example, out of the box, Bazel is quite happy 
um, and this is probably different from how Blaze works internally at Google, but but uh, Bazel is quite happy to um, pick up whatever uh, C compiler happens to be on your path and use that. But who's to say that your C compiler on your machine, Robin, is the same C compiler as on my machine? And so maybe you run into a build failure that I can't reproduce, and maybe that build failure is purely uh, due to the fact that you're using Clang 7.1 or something, and I'm using Clang 6. Um, or, or, or I'm using GCC and you're using Clang. Which um, is very frustrating when it happens. Exactly. And uh, so this is actually, you know, this problem of reproducible builds, uh, re being able to reproduce most issues that, that um, engineers run into um, in the course of their development is a theme that we, that's been very important to us um, since the early days of Twig, where, you know, I, once or twice on a project, I'd hear uh, an engineer say, hey, um, I have a problem. And then another engineer says, interesting, works for me. And, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I, I vowed that um, works for me is something that we'd never hear again um, uh, at Twig. Nice. Except, you know, where, where the problem is obviously because of, uh, say, a concurrency bug or, or something like that. But, you know, we don't want, we don't want it to be wasting any time uh, playing ping pong, trying to figure out, ah, aha, right. So you have a problem because you're using a different compiler and I installed this other compiler and, and, and that's the source of the problem. I mean, it can take a very long time uh, for, for you and I to, to figure that out. So in order to, um, you know, just, just not have these conversations that are not very interesting conversations at all. I mean, you know, in this process that, that you and I are going to engage in to find out which version, the, you know, the, to, to hone in on, on this, you know, this one difference in the environment that turns out to be very uh, significant for the, for the project. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty boring process. I mean, what did you learn? What did I learn? In the end, we just learned that we had different compilers on each of our machines um, and that different compilers do different things. Not super interesting. So in order to, you know, focus on, on the more interesting problems that, that, that your team um, ought to be solving, um, you know, it's, it's quite important to say, okay, let's design the build system um, in such a way that we know for sure that we're always all using exactly the same uh, C compiler, that we're always using exactly the same uh, Rust compiler, Haskell compiler um, version of uh, uh, glibc, version of OpenSSL, uh, or, or, or any other system library uh, version of the PostgreSQL uh, libraries, for example. So um, it, it turns out that out of the box, you know, Bazel doesn't necessarily need, uh, know how to, for example, build uh, the PostgreSQL libraries. Um, you know, no one's bothered to kind of uh, Bazelify PostgreSQL, and it doesn't know how to build OpenSSL or or the or, or GCC. Um, however, um, there is, um, another, um, system called Nix. Uh, you know, there's a project, um, uh, called the Nix PKGS project that uses the, uh, um, a package manager called, called Nix, where, um, now, now you can think of Nix as kind of a, or you can think of any package manager as a, um, coarse grained build system. Uh, that does have a dependency graph and keeps track of you know what what depends on what and keeps track of uh, these these dependencies in a very precise way. So, for example, your uh, your your package manager might know that this particular version of GCC really wants 
um, uh, this, uh, this this particular um, other dependency on your system, uh, you know, in order to be installed and to work successfully. So what we then worked on is the integration uh, between uh, Nix PKGS and uh, Nix and uh, and Bazel, such that um, you can pull. Um, so g starting from a from a Bazel plus Nix project, uh, you know, you just run Bazel build. And uh, you will always use the version from. Uh, you will you will always say use um, the same version of PostgreSQL or or the same version of the C compiler because these um, third party party artifacts were pulled from NixPKGS, and which version was pulled depends on a very precise description of of which per, uh, version to use that's checked into the to the monorepo. I want to switch topics now and talk a little bit about the future. I I wonder what you think of say um, Rust. Is Rust a, a functional programming language, and should functional programmers or so-called functional programmers should they be interested in this? Is it part of the the future of Twig? So I think Rust is an absolutely fascinating programming language, and a big part of what Twig's been doing in the last few years. Has actually consisted in uh, trying to take some of the DNA from Rust and transpose it in other programming languages. You talk about uh, functional programming, and uh, you know, is, is Rust a functional language? And um, I want to say uh, that depends on what your definition of functional programming is. And you know, if you look at what functional programming meant historically, I don't think that's really relevant anymore. Um, so you know, let's kind of jump into the history a little bit um, and and talk about you know, if you want to talk about the future of functional programming, for example, I do. Uh, you know, let's let's kind of divorce that that future definition of functional programming from the uh, traditional definition of functional programming. So. Um, in the early days, you know, uh, of, of computer science, let's say, um, so, you know, in the, in the fifties, when the first computers came about, um, you already by then had languages like Fortran, um, you, th th those were also the early days of, of Lisp, um, languages like C, uh, came, um, in the seventies or uh, late sixties and, um, there, so these these are all very old programming languages um, that are still being used today, and these are languages where you uh, don't have so where functions are not um, first class citizens. They're not first class citizens because they're not values that you can pass to another function, um, the way you could, for example, uh, pass a number to uh, to a function, uh, you know, without thinking about it twice. Or, or an array, let's say. So these, historically, you had, and these were, you know, languages that were widely used. Um, uh, you had very widely used, uh, widely used program languages that uh, treated functions as, as second-class citizens, because in some cases, you, you couldn't, you couldn't quite do what you expected with them. So for example, in C, you can pass a function as an argument to another function, but only if that other function is itself a um, 
is defined at top level. Um, now, it's what happens in C. In fact, you can only define uh, functions at top level. But you know, it's it's very natural. It's a very natural thing to want to be able to do uh, to define nested functions, or indeed, um, uh, you know, functions that have no name, uh, you know, within within a code block. Um, so you know, in Pascal, for example, uh, you you always had this ability to define nested functions. But I believe what you weren't allowed to do is um, so you're allowed to define a function within the uh, within the scope of an outer function. But I believe what you weren't allowed to do was to have the um, inner function depend on uh, local variables that were defined in the outer function. Because in order to do that, you uh, you need this uh, technical um, uh, device in order to, 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 to for, for, for the compiler to really support that. Um, so the compiler needs to essentially implement um, functions as, as closures and so and, and Pascal didn't didn't support closures um, the but but this idea of a closure and this idea of, of being able to say you can you can pass any function uh, you can define any function in any scope um, and being able to, to pass that as an argument to um, to, uh, to to other functions it, you know is something that uh, exists since the since the 60s with uh, uh, Peter Landon and the, the, the PAL programming language. And so in the academic world, um, you've, you've had um, functions since a very long time ago. You've had programming languages since a very long time ago who uh, supported uh, functions as real first-class values um, you know, in, the, in the same way that you support arrays and, and numbers. Now, so, so that was functional programming back in the day, right? But these days, Java uh, supports anonymous functions. Um, Rust supports anonymous. I, I, I can create a function on the fly in Rust. I have function literals. That's, that's not a problem at all. Um, I, I can do it in Ruby. I can do it in Python. I can do it in nearly in any language that you can, that you uh, bear to, to, to name. Um, you know, a, a modern uh, programming language that's still in use today. So, is this even a, a, a useful distinction? Well, the thing is that what um, over time, you know, a, a lot of other things got associated with functional programming, and these other things were also inventions of programming language research. So, for example, people started inventing uh, uh, very rich uh, type systems in order to find as many bugs as, uh, as possible, as early as possible. Um, you um, had uh, folks who wanted to focus on um, making, building programs in a way that's as uh, composable as possible. Um, and it turns out that, um, you know, modeling most things as functions has a very um, simplifying effect. So, for example, uh, you have programming languages where even this idea of um, statements, i.e., you know, you have a statement where you call a function, and then you have another function, uh, another statement that calls another function after that. Uh, so you're doing one thing after the other. This idea of a statement, uh, there are programming languages where you model that, uh, you emulate uh, that 
feature of a programming language using functions. Uh, indeed, that's what uh, monads in, uh, in Haskell are, are for. Um, so the programming language community is very interested in, in, in building compositional programs, is very interested in um, uh, characterizing the behavior of programs. And these, over time, start becoming associated with functional programming. And I think that these two things are kind of the more important um, points to focus on when it comes to focusing on, uh, when it comes to discussing the future of functional programming. And indeed, when it comes to talking about languages like Rust, because a language like Rust is a language that uses types to, uh, to very good effect. Um, and, uh, you know, who, who uses, uh, who has a, a type system that's expressive enough to, to catch um, a very large uh, class of bugs that, that you know, normally would only be able to, you'd normally only be able to catch in a, in a functional programming language. Um, so, for example, you know, in Rust, uh, you're, you're able to, to guarantee at, at compile time that uh, in an array, you're only, um, you're only putting uh, Booleans in an array, or you're only putting uh, numbers, or you're only putting records of a particular shape. And all the elements of that array are, are of the same shape. So the point is that R Rust is a language that does take a lot of ideas from programming language research. And if you uh, want to loosely say that, you know, f uh, f functional programming um, is a, you know, w when, you're, when you're interested in functional programming, you're interested in this idea of using, um, of basically using a, a language that's based on very strong uh, principles uh, that were discovered over a very long period of time in academic research, then th the design of Rust has, has many of the same motivations. Mathieu, thank you so much for joining me today and answering some very deep and interesting questions about functional programming and about Twig. Where can, you are the CEO of Twig, where can the audience go on the internet to learn more about you or Twig? Twig.io um, is, our, is our website. Uh, I do encourage you to uh, uh, read our blog. Um, we have a new blog post out uh, most weeks, and um, it's it's very much an uh, an engineering uh, focused blog. So we talk a lot about the uh, different experiments that uh, we've started um, over the years. And you know, uh, I might have mentioned earlier the uh, the focus that we have around language interoperability. And um, so you know, a lot of our work. I mean, we've tried some very lightweight approaches to achieve language interoperability, and um, you know, a, a lot of the work that we've done there uh, around projects like Inline Java, which uh, allows you to combine Java and Haskell, um, uh, or or Haskell R, which uh, allows you to combine uh, R and Haskell in in the same project, and in particular, to be able to call all any R library in existence from Haskell. Um, uh, or vice versa, which is quite useful when you have a library that exists in one ecosystem but not in the other. Um, all these projects, you know, we talk about um, uh, on our blog. If you're interested in our uh, um, yeah, some other experiments that we're doing, is around um, you know, as we were saying uh, earlier, taking some of the DNA from Rust and uh, and putting it in uh, in the context of uh, a different programming language. 
Um, this is uh, this is what we're doing with linear types. Um, what we're doing with linear types is that we're saying, hey, you sometimes do very much care about um, the memory that your program is using, and you're caring about the how long things in, uh, stay in memory. And um, so when you, when you do care about that, you want to have very um, fine-grained manual control over the lifetime of these uh, resources that live in memory. So then you want to be using linear types. In Rust, you, you have to... Um, you have to worry about the, the lifetime of objects, you know, pretty much all the time, everywhere. Um, and this, uh, it turns out that it, it currently we don't really know of a way to, um, to do things in that way while also um, um, having a really strong composability and code reuse. Um, so... Um, we thought that so so what we've been doing in the last few years have been trying to look at um, how we can um, uh, design a, uh, take that DNA put it in an existing programming language where you don't have to worry where you where you don't normally worry about the the lifetime of, of objects in memory and then uh, when you do then you can turn to um, then you can turn to um, you know the uh, type system features that are very similar to, um, to the type systems features that Rust has, that they'll allow you to reason uh, very, um, um, very finely about the, um, about the lifetimes of objects in memory. So all of these things are, are on our blog. Um, we're also, there's a very exciting developments around dependent types um, that um, um, are, are, are happening right now and um, uh, so uh, follow us on, uh, on follow our blog and, and follow us on Twitter. Mathieu, thank you. Thank you, Robin. <laughs>